Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am your co-host, Austin. And before we get started on today's episode, we have a couple things we're going to address. The first thing is new Patreons. Dope. Morgan Hicks. Awesome. Jordan Jackson. Let's go. Jamie Bennett. Thanks a million. Margaret Nicholson. Thank you. Ashley Pedroza. Gracias. Brandy Garza. Thanks. Kimberly. No last name. <laughs> Thanks, Kimberly. <laughs> Elena Mitchell. Cool. Alexandra Connor. Mm-hmm. And Rachel Roll. Wow. Thank you all so much. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Now, this case was recommended by Audrey Egeman. And if you want to request a case, you can do it on our website, mamamystery.com. There is a request a case form that you can fill out. And I add it to my list of cases, and there's a lot on there. So no guarantees, but you know, I try to do recommended cases. So. And in case you're new, because we don't do this often. Uh-huh. I mean, we don't do this little reminder often. Yes. This is a full-length episode. Yes. And it's where Kelly, who loves true crime, tells me, who doesn't know shit about true crime, all about a true crime story. Yep. There's Mom and Mystery headlines. Yes, and those are once a week, and we just talk about the headlines for the week or whatever is relevant. And that one's a little different because instead of Kelly and Austin, the podcasters, you have news anchors, mm-hmm. Kelly and Austin. <laughs> and then there's <laughs> and Mama Minute. Yeah, and then there's Mama Minutes, which we don't have very many of those. I usually just, you know, those kind of come to me organically when something, you know, comes up in my life that I just want to talk about that I think will be relatable, but... We need to get more. We need to get better at those. I know because there's so much we could talk about, but um, on the headlines too, you're on those, and at the end, we're going to start letting you tell the positive story of the week, which is fun. Yep. So, all right, are you ready for today's story? Let's do this, girl. Okay. Oh, also, I should point out that we are recording this on video, so hopefully everything works out and we can distribute a video of this podcast episode to YouTube or a Patreon page or somewhere. We'll, we're going to figure it out, but we're kind of just like testing the waters. And that's a lot of work. And it's a lot of work. Kelly's a busy mom. I am. And a busy podcaster. So, you know, don't put pressure on me, but my resolution this year is to push out more content, and nope. I think I'm doing good so far. Don't put pressure on me. When in reality, I just put you're pressure doing a really on myself. Job. Yeah, you're the only one putting pressure on anybody. <laughs> Nobody puts pressure on me except me. Let's hear it, babe. All right. So... In November of 1992, the lifeless body of Michelle Lawless was found in her running vehicle sitting on an off-ramp with the headlights on. And for decades, authorities have tried to piece together just what happened to Michelle that night. And today, we've got a list of suspects, but nobody is being held responsible for her death. So today, we are going to tell the story of Angela Michelle Lawless. All right. And it's just an unsolved mystery, it sounds like. Yeah. Just like the TV show I used to watch. Yep. Used to scare the shit out of me. They still have unsolved mysteries on Netflix. Right. Very spooky. I don't watch them. So Angela Michelle Lawless went by the name Michelle, and she was born on August 2nd of 1973 to parents Marvin and Esther. She had a brother named Jason and a sister, Valerie. She grew up in Benton, Missouri, which is a city in Scott County, just south of Cape Girardeau, and about an hour west of the Mississippi River. She was only 19 years old and a nursing student in November of 1992. At barely five feet tall, she was small but so mighty. She was fearless and had a green belt in karate. And she was compassionate, studying to become a nurse while working as a candy striper at St. Francis Medical Center in Cape Girardeau. What is a candy striper? So back in the day, they would have candy stripers deliver medications to patients, like their daily medications. 
usually in like pill form. Or you just go uh, go around and like deliver treats. A candy stri- Am I saying this right? Candy striper? Yeah. It's like a real thing. You can Google it. They don't do it anymore. Interesting. But, you know, every hospital has like volunteers, you know, just maybe patient advocates, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, okay. that's what they used to call them. Interesting. They little outfits and everything. Interesting. So Michelle had been dating a boy named Leon Lamb for about three years. And although they were happy together, their relationship didn't come without drama from the teens. They'd sometimes fight over jealousy issues when one of them would hang out with the opposite sex. In fact, on the night of Michelle's murder, Leon got upset when he found out that she'd been riding around in a car with boys earlier that night. But despite that, they had a good night together. And on November 7th, 1992, they were intimate with each other before she ended up reluctantly leaving at around one o'clock in the morning. She was on her way home from Leon's when just about a half a mile from her home, she came to a stop on an exit ramp. And then in the early morning hours of November 8th, a man named Dallas Butler was riding his motorcycle along I-55 near Benton when he noticed two cars pulled over on the exit ramp. One was a small dark sedan and a lighter Ford truck parked behind it. He noticed a man next to the small dark vehicle and a woman slumped over inside of it, but with her hands on the wheel. As he got closer, he noticed the man was wearing a red hat, leaning through the window. And as he was about to ask if everyone was, was okay, the man in the red hat told him everything was fine. So he just kept driving. Weird. But Dallas, yeah, Dallas had a bad feeling in his gut that night and he just couldn't shake it. And then sure enough, when he saw the news later that day of a homicide that took place on that same exit ramp, he knew he had to go to the police with what he saw. But Dallas wasn't the only one who saw the car pulled over that night. A couple driving by found it odd that this car was parked on the exit ramp with its engine running and its lights on. And it appeared that nobody was in it. So rather than get out and check on the car themselves in the middle of the night, they just went straight to the sheriff's department to report it, which was really close. It wasn't unusual that they went to the sheriff's department. Rick Walter was the reserve officer working at the time, along with Officer Roy Moore. So at about 1.30 that morning, the two of them go check out the car themselves, and when they pull up on the 1986 Maroon Buick Somerset, they were faced with a grisly scene. Only half a mile from home, slumped over in the front seat, is Michelle, covered in blood. There's blood spatter on the outside of the car and on the guardrail beside it. My God, on the guardrail beside it even? Mm -hmm. So authorities quickly realized that her attack likely started at the bottom of the hill next to the off-ramp as if she got out of her car and maybe tried to run from her attacker. As evidenced also by her muddy socks while her shoes were left inside the car. A pool of blood remained in the grass and you could see where her body was drugged back up the hill, over the guardrail, around the front of the car, and then placed back into her vehicle. Inside the vehicle were three shell casings from a 380 handgun. Michelle was shot three times at point-blank range inside the vehicle even after she'd been beaten so severely. But Michelle put up a fight. She had matter under her fingernails and wounds to her hands and arms. Her passenger side door was locked, but the window on her driver's side door was rolled down about five to seven inches. And this is an important detail. There were reportedly no fingerprints left behind, but police began to piece together what might have happened that night. It's possible Michelle pulled over for somebody that she knew 
or someone who was urging her to pull over. Maybe she rolled her window down to communicate with whoever it was and at that point was forcibly removed from her car or voluntarily got out. But outside of the car is where the attack likely started. As she tried to fight back and possibly run away, she somehow ended up at the bottom of the embankment beside her car. This is where she suffered two blunt force traumas to her skull, likely rendering her unconscious. Then the attacker dragged her back up the hill, over the guardrail, around the front of her car, and she was tossed back into her car. But before she was put back in the car, I think she was placed next to it for a moment because there was a pool of blood next to the front tire on the driver's side. So maybe it was just long enough for the attacker to catch his breath or open the driver's side door to get her back in. But at this point, once he got her back into the car, if she wasn't dead yet, the attacker made sure to leave no witnesses and he shot her three times, once in the back and twice in the head, all at point blank range. This was an absolutely brutal attack and seems very, very personal, especially considering that she wasn't robbed. Her purse was still there. Her rings were still there, although they were not on her fingers. They were in her center console. And although she lost the fight, I think there's something to be said for a barely five-foot-tall woman to hold her own like that. That sounds like mania. Yeah. Like... Just rage. Can you imagine, like... Envisioning this whole thing happening, a person getting drugged down an embankment, knocked out, drug around the car, sat up against the car, sat back in the car, shot three more times. Like, how long do you think this would take? 10 minutes? I don't know. But I mean, yeah, to drag her back up the hill. I mean, I don't know. Regardless, it's insane. And if she left her boyfriend's house around one o'clock... And then, you know, was reported as being seen around 1.30. This had to have happened between that mm-hmm. time. I mean, it had to have happened in such a tight time frame. Mm-hmm. So right as officers arrived on the scene around 1.30 that morning, another man walked into the sheriff's department to report what he had just witnessed. Mark Abbott said that he noticed a car parked on the side of an off-ramp and that as he got closer to the vehicle, he noticed what appeared to be a woman slumped over in the front seat. He told police that she appeared to be hurt. He saw blood and thought maybe she'd been shot. Now, now originally he said that her window was rolled down all the way and then he was able to reach in and pull her up before realizing that she was seriously hurt. And at first he also said he had no idea who it was and the only way he was able to tell that it was a female was because of the rings on her fingers. But the rings weren't weren't on on her her. fingers. They were in the center console. So he drove to the nearest gas station and attempted to use a payphone there, but said that the phone wasn't working, so he just drove to the station instead. He then said he noticed a white car drive away from the area and that in that car were maybe two or three dark-skinned, possibly Hispanic men who were asking where they could get gas because they were almost out of gas. So Mark left the station that night and was told that he would be contacted later for a more in-depth interview. But he ended up going to a girl's house, so when the police went to his house looking for him, he obviously wasn't there, and they weren't able to get a hold of him until later that afternoon for more questioning. During that interview, he reiterated that he was able to reach his whole body through that driver's side window to check on Michelle, but the cops thought this was odd knowing that the window wasn't completely rolled down. Because you said five or six inches. Yeah, like he would have had to break it if he was really shoving his whole body through it. 
Later that same day on November 8th, Mark called his friend Kevin Williams before going over to his house. Mark told Kevin and his wife about what he saw on the off-ramp early that morning, and then Mark and Kevin went to Glenn Farrell's house, who owned a trailer sales business right next to the off-ramp. Mark asked Glenn if he could go onto the property, and Kevin later testified that it seemed like Mark was looking for something but didn't know what. Now, with few leads to go on, Michelle's boyfriend, Leon, was given a polygraph and he passed, but months went by with no other sustainable leads. Then finally, police got a big break in the case when multiple inmates came forward to say that a fellow inmate was bragging about his involvement in the Michelle Lawless case, and they offered to admit what they knew in exchange for leniency in their sentences. So three inmates told authorities that a 17-year-old boy named Joshua Kieser was bragging about killing Michelle Lawless. So authorities showed pictures of Joshua and Joshua's car to Mark Abbott, and he confirmed that it looked like what he saw that night because Joshua did, in fact, drive a small white car. But it conflicts with his original statement that the car was full of a few Hispanic men. And at first he's like, yeah, there was two or three. Later he says, well, maybe it was six. It could have been up to ten. Ten men in a car? He's all over the place. Regardless, police arrested Joshua Kieser and took him into custody. They found a black leather jacket of his that appeared to have blood on it, so that was tested to see if it was blood and if it belonged to Michelle, and they were told it was positive. Both were positive. And another witness came forward to claim that she was at a Halloween party a week before the murder. At this party, Chantel Kreider said that she witnessed Joshua Kieser approach Michelle and try to hit on her. She declined his advances, and he got upset with her, cussing at her and becoming aggressive. So with this as a possible motive, the sheriff, Bill Farrell, felt like he had a strong case against Joshua Kieser, even though there was no physical evidence that placed Joshua at or in Michelle's car that night. One officer who assisted with the investigation, Don Windham, felt like it was all a bit rushed. He said, quote, the charges when I came back were a surprise to me because I didn't at that point feel like I had finished the investigation enough to know what the truth of the charges were. The sheriff got the warrants on his own without telling me that he had the warrants charging him with first-degree murder, end quote. I was just going to say to you, whenever you said that he felt like he built a case enough against him despite all this other stuff, I was going to ask you, so is that... Like, is that always just a subjective thing or is there actually something? Because Casey Anthony, Mm -hmm. they had what we would have been like is like, you know, sealed, like you got him. Mm -hmm. You see, like you caught her evidence and they couldn't couldn't pursue her yet. Right. And they waited. Yeah. Yeah. So So is it just subjective? So I, I, that's a good question, and I think it has to do with the laws in every state and what you need in order to indict someone on charges like that. I think sometimes you have to have like a grand jury to indict someone on federal charges or criminal charges. Now, don't quote me because I'm no law expert, but this is also in 1992. So who's to say what the laws were then and how they compare to the way they are now yeah. and like what would have qualified as, you know, sufficient evidence. Is it for a warrant? Is that the right phrase, like wording? Is it for a warrant to serve these these people with a crime, or is that what it is? 
Well, in this case, he he charged him like he was able to file charges against Joshua Kieser. Okay. So, I mean, I guess that's essentially similar to, if not the same, yeah, the, I don't know the same thing as like getting a warrant for somebody's arrest. But a lot of times you still have to go in front of a judge and say, here's the charges I'm bringing forth and here's the evidence that I believe support these charges. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, that's all right. It's good banter. I mean, I'm just curious. I didn't know because... I mean, this guy seems to have built a case where he feels good enough to charge him. And he's the sheriff. So, yeah. like, does that hold more weight? Yeah. I don't It's interesting. We're not a freaking um, show about law, so I don't I think know. we're expected to know this. I wish the prosecutor's this. pod could, like, be a guest because they would know. Is prosecutor's pod? What oh, it's it? one of my favorite podcasts. And um, it's two prosecutors that just discuss cases, all sorts of cases. But I love their podcast. Um, We've messaged back and forth on Instagram before, but Hmm. I would love to get their take on it. So maybe I'll have to shoot them a message and do a follow-up on headlines or something. Do it, Mike. So during the pretrial process, the prosecution is legally obligated to share any materials that they find would be helpful to the defense. But there was one report that they never shared with the defense, and it was a report made by Officer Bobby Wooten in which Mark Abbott actually named who he saw that night in the small white car near the scene. The man he named was Ray Ring, like another name pulled out of thin air. And this man was African-American, not Hispanic. So not only would it directly conflict with his identification of Joshua Kieser in a photo lineup, but Joshua Kieser is white. Mm-hmm. So it's like, I don't know, your credibility is just going down the drain. So Mark Abbott made this report 10 days after the murder when his memory would have been fresher than when he identified Joshua Kieser. Guy sounds like he's just giving people the runaround. Yeah, it does seem like that for sure. During Joshua's trial, the prosecution brought forward that witness from the Halloween party, and she testified under oath that she saw Joshua and Michelle arguing that night. The prosecution also told the jury in their closing argument that it was no coincidence that the luminol test revealed the presence of blood on his jacket and that the car glowed like a Christmas tree. They also told the jury in the closing statement that they put Joshua at the scene with a gun in hand, even though the murder weapon was never found. Now, here's a really upsetting detail. Prior to the trial, those jailhouse informants came to Joshua's attorney and recanted their stories about Joshua admitting to the crime. But then they re-recanted that. But this evidence couldn't be presented during the trial because it would mean that Joshua's lawyer would have to testify and your own defense attorney can't testify in your trial. Since he couldn't afford new counsel, they had to leave this out. But that is what got him arrested in the first place, were these three informants saying that he was bragging about it. And then later they come to his attorney and say, we lied. But then they're like, never mind. Never mind, we didn't lie. And So we're playing games. We're playing games. Just like the other guy. Mm-hmm. So the jury only took three and a half hours to deliberate, and they agreed that Joshua Kieser was guilty of the lesser charge of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 60 years in the Missouri State Penitentiary in Jefferson City. Now, this prison was a living hell. It was run down and decrepit, having opened in 1836, Time Magazine dubbed it the bloodiest 47 acres in America because of the incredibly high rate of serious and violent assaults within the prison. 
It was finally shut down in 2004 because a new one was built somewhere else. And now it's open to ghost tours because the prison has had, well, had the gas chamber where it put to death at least 40 inmates. Interesting side note, the Missouri State Penitentiary was home to many notorious inmates, but one in particular was James Earl Ray, who was convicted of assassinating Martin Luther King Jr. Holy smokes. And he committed many other crimes as well, but while he was in the Missouri State Penitentiary in 1967, a year before MLK was shot, he escaped the prison by hiding in a bread truck that was leaving the prison. No way. Yeah. That's crazy. I thought... Martin Luther King Jr. was shot in Mississippi. So that's, I don't wonder why he was. Um, He was not shot in Missouri. This had, uh, so I I can't remember off the top of my head exactly where he was shot. Mississippi. Was it Mississippi? Pretty sure. Um, I wasn't sure if it was Memphis or Mississippi. Oh, you might be right. It might be Memphis. I'm going to look it up. Look it up. But um, the crime that he was serving time for um, at the Missouri State Penitentiary was unrelated to the assassination. This was before he assassinated Martin Luther King Jr. You were right, Memphis. Memphis. Okay. It was (laughs) Nam. So shortly after his conviction, Don Pierce, who hosted the Halloween party, was reading an article about the trial when she saw the testimony given by Chantel. And she was shocked to see this because she knew for a fact that Josh Keezer was not there. She hosted the party. So Don compiled a list of everyone who was at that party that night and gave it to Josh's defense attorney, who then gave that list to Sheriff Farrell. Moreover, there were witnesses who swore that Joshua was in Illinois with them on the night of the murder, more than 350 miles away from where Michelle was murdered. But nothing ever came of it. Sheriff Farrell could just not be bothered with anything that went against his belief that Joshua Keezer was responsible for the murder of Michelle Lawless. During his time in prison, Joshua met a social worker named Jane Williams. Throughout their relationship, Jane grew fond of Joshua and really believed in his innocence, so much so that she knew she had to do something to help him. She wrote letters in his his defense, trying to assist in his appeal process, and during his time in prison, a new sheriff was elected, Rick Walter, the same officer who showed up on the night that she was murdered, showed up on the scene. Rick Walter always believed in his gut that Joshua Keezer was not the one responsible for this crime. So he made the unpopular decision to reopen the case. And the reason I say it's unpopular is because it was the previous sheriff that made the conviction. So you're essentially willing to admit that your own office fucked up. Mm -hmm. During his reinvestigation of the case, Sheriff Rick Walter discovered an interview that Mark Abbott had given in 1997, five years after the murder. In this interview, he was requesting leniency for a drug charge that he was facing, and he admitted that he was there the night Michelle Lawless was murdered and that he saw who did it, his friend Kevin Williams. He claimed that Kevin and Michelle were having an an affair and that Michelle found out she was pregnant, so Kevin, who was married at the time, murdered her. Furthermore, one of Joshua's cellmates, Jeff Rogers, swore that Joshua always insisted he was innocent and testified, quote, that Sheriff Bill Farrell called him into his office and presented him with a statement, which already was prepared, claiming that Joshua Keezer confessed. He did not want to sign it because it was not true, but did sign it after the sheriff threatened to make life difficult for him if he refused and to help him out if he cooperated. 
And this is according to a court ruling authored by Judge Richard Callahan. So this sheriff is obviously just abusing his power. So lastly, upon further investigation, it was found that the bloody substance found on Joshua's jacket wasn't actually blood at all. It was tomato juice. And the prosecution knew the luminol results showed the substance on the jacket was not human blood. The prosecutor also knew there was no evidence linking any of it to Michelle Lawless or Joshua Kieser. So it's like, it's all just going different directions and it's like people are trying to frame people. Yeah. And they're, they're all trying to frame Joshua Kieser and why? Who are they trying to protect and why? Mm-hmm. So in December of 2008, the new case went before Judge Richard Callahan and he agreed to review the new evidence. But shockingly, with all this new evidence and testimony from witnesses, on February 17th of 2009, Judge Callahan chose not to grant him a new trial. Instead, he set him free. What? Judge Callahan made the ruling on February 17th, agreeing that there was misconduct on behalf of the prosecution and ordered that the charges against him be dismissed, saying, quote, Joshua Kieser was betrayed by almost every level of the judicial process, end quote. So Joshua Kieser was released the very next day after serving 16 years of his life in prison. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine how shocked he was when somebody knocked on a cell and said, you're free, you're going home. I can't. Out I mean, of nowhere? 16 years in, in just a living hell for a crime you know you didn't commit. So you I don't mean, think he did? Of, I absolutely know he didn't. He wasn't even in the state. There's no way he did it. There's absolutely no way. So Joshua Kieser sued Scott County and others and received a reported $4 million settlement, out of which he then donated ten grand towards the investigation to find Michelle's killer. In 2015, Dallas Butler, the man on the motorcycle who witnessed a man in a red hat next to Michelle's car that night, was called in to look at a lineup of some mugshots. On two separate occasions, he chose Kevin Williams' picture as who he saw that night. This would coincide with one of the stories Mark Abbott told about the crime. And Kevin's wife at the time later came forward to admit that she gave him an alibi that night by saying he was at a Christmas party, but later admitted that he actually left that party early. So they ended up splitting up in 2000. I don't remember, 2009, I think. Anyway, he started dating a new girl named Gayla Mooney. And Gayla said that there was one incident where Kevin showed just how hot his temper could get when she brought up Michelle Lawless. She said, quote, when I said that, he stood up out of the chair. He grabbed me by the throat, picked me up in midair and slammed me against the wall. He was so mad he was spitting. He threatened to kill me, end quote. So that guy was the psychopath that did all this probably. Well, Mark Abbott has also become a prime suspect after a gun shop owner said that Mark said he, quote, took care of the bitch, end quote. What the hell? Could they have been together? And a close friend of Michelle's said that she was romantically interested in Mark, but was told to stay away from him because he was trouble. And Mark doesn't exactly have a squeaky clean past of his own. In fact, on the night of the murder, he told police that his name was Mark Abbott, but then he told an officer at the station who took his report that his name was Matt which was the name of his identical twin brother. So I guess they would like 
switch places all the time, you know, like this was just common for them to do like parent trap. Yeah. Like parent (sighs) trap kind of stuff. Like I'll, you know, go to your class and you go to mine, but Mm -hmm. then obviously in more serious situations like this, they would do it. But Mark. Good timing, right? mm -hmm. Convenient. But Mark and Matt were both well known for distributing meth in the area and they've both been convicted of federal crimes. Now, three witnesses have said that Kevin Williams told them Mark Abbott killed Michelle, but another three witnesses have said that Mark told them Kevin killed Michelle. Real quick, can I stop you? Mm -hmm. Cliff notes. Mm -hmm. Kevin, guy hitting on her that that they got upset, she got upset with? Kevin is the guy in the, in allegedly the red hat who was seen with her beside the road, who allegedly had an affair and impregnated her, which we found later not to be true because based on her autopsy, she was not pregnant. Okay. Mark. Mm -hmm. Mark Abbott was someone that she had admitted that she had a crush on in her diary, but was told to kind of stay away from because he was involved in drugs. And he claimed in all of his stories that he didn't know her. But he actually did know her, and there was proof that he did. But his story and his alibi just kept changing, which is a huge red flag. And Josh? Josh Keezer was an innocent bystander, pulled into this from three jailhouse informants who whatever, maybe had some vendetta against him. Was he already in jail, though? He was already in jail for something else, which was like a petty crime, not anything like this. Okay. But, um, you know, these three jailhouse informants were doing this to get leniency in their own right. sentences. So it begs the question, how credible are informants if yeah. they're doing it to possibly get something out of it? You know? Okay, I just need cliff notes. This has gone so many directions. Well, and I'd also want to point out that the last person to see her that night was her boyfriend, Leon, and his DNA was found under her fingernails. And that was a huge red flag to some people because they were like, well... I mean, if her, his DNA is under her fingernails, then he had to have done it. Mm-hmm. But he admits that that night they had sex and that she would get really passionate during sex and sometimes scratch his back. A little back scratching. So I think Leon is clear. I don't think Leon had anything to do with her murder. Some people disagree, but I think that that is a credible um, mm-hmm. alibi, I guess, or ex- explanation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to this day, nobody has been convicted for the murder of Michelle Lawless, and her case remains unsolved to this day. Now, there have been episodes of 48 Hours dedicated to this story. There's a whole podcast called The Lawless Files of a guy who really investigates this like down to the core. I mean, the thing is, is like I'm barely scratching the surface of the details of this story. There are other players. There's like a murder for hire plot that essentially used a 380 handgun. Could this have been somehow connected to Michelle Lawless's case because those 380 shell casings were found in her car? I mean, there's so many things you could pull into this case to make it like a whole series, mm-hmm. but I just don't have that kind of time. So if you really want to dive in, I'm going to recommend the Lawless Files podcast. Is the whole podcast around this case? Yes. That's pretty crazy. I mean, that's like we're going to commit to a podcast about it. Well, there's plenty of podcasts that dedicate their whole show to one story. How long can you talk about one story? Well, it depends. I mean, on something like this where it keeps evolving and there's so many different players and there's the politics of the activity in the sheriff's office. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a lot. So That's wild. yeah, when there's a lot of material, I can see how that happens. Yeah. And there's easily a lot of material in this one. That's wild. Yeah. Weird. Well done. Thanks.
That one was all over the place. It was all over the place. And I'm sorry if it was hard to follow at times because I was worried about that because there's so many different people. I think you did good. Mm-hmm. And then the cliff notes helped. Yeah, I think so too, to just kind of wrap it up in a nice little bow. Yeah. Well, cool. that's it. That's all we have. We'll see you on Friday for headlines. We'll probably go live. And I'll bring that positive shit. And Austin will bring a positive story. Have a great day. Have a great if week. If you're listening. A great week. Yes, we love you so much. Mama. Mystery. Out. Bye.